Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John 14 and focus on verses 12 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of your son to his apostles. We ask that you would give us the right understanding of them. And Father, that we would uh, believe them. And that you would, uh, Lord, illumine our minds and our hearts. May all of our thoughts and meditations be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. So just to get you back into context a little bit for this passage, Judas has betrayed the Lord and he has left the upper room. The apostles have argued about which, which of them is the greatest. Peter has boasted that he would lay down his life for uh, Jesus, only to have Jesus then tell him that he would, in fact, not lay down his life, but deny him even that night th- uh, three times. Thomas has expressed confusion about where Jesus is going. Philip then has proven he doesn't quite grasp who Jesus is by saying that he really needs to see the Father and then that would be enough to convince him. So I mean, this meeting, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not going the way that we might have thought it would have gone. And here is Jesus, the Son of Man, hours away from bearing the sins of the world on the cross. Of, that, of saying the, that, that song of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's having to run a meeting. He's having to run a very important sort of last marching orders meeting for his men. Uh, The sermon we have been giving our attention to over the last few months, chapters 13 and 14, and then on into 15, 16, and 17, are the final words that the Savior gives to the men who would carry the gospel out to the nations after his departure. And so these are heavy words. uh, Jesus really wants to communicate with these men. 
These are heavy words. They're Jesus, in a sense, deathbed exhortations. His deathbed rebukes, his, his corrections, his, like, like Moses blessing the, the tribes. Here, here he is blessing these apostles before he dies. You know, and you, you think that Jesus might be discouraged by the ignorance and the pride of the group of men before him. And it's been demonstrated throughout this passage at that meeting. Their pride is just on display. You might think that he would despair based upon their behavior and, and confusion, right? If it were not for the work of the Holy Spirit, which he will soon be speaking about, that certainly would have been the case. But even in the face of their, their arguments and unbelief, he goes on, he plows forward to encourage these men even as they're just demonstrating all kinds of, of pride. And the verses we give our attention to this morning are stupendously encouraging. Uh, to, to these misfits, right? To these misfits, these mere men, these sinful men, these men who were not only tempted but gave in to temptation and sinned. These sinful men, these weak men. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do. Oh, man. Greater works than Jesus did. And he says, you'll do greater works than me because I go to the Father. And so the first thing to notice is that he says great things will happen because I go to the Father. His departure is not at all a setback for the message of the gospel going out to the nations. On the contrary, it is better this way. He says as much, you know, in a few verses. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so there it is. It is to the apostles' advantage that Jesus go away because when he goes away, he will send power. He will send power. The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, I don't think I need to remind you, but maybe I do, is Almighty God. He is the third person of the Trinity. So that's the first thing. It's better that Jesus leave than that he stay. Then secondly, look at the promise he gives to the, these apostles. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. And we start scratching our head, and we're like, okay, huh. Is Jesus saying here that believers will do greater works than he did? Is that what he's saying? Is he really saying that? I mean, that's what the words seem to say, but is he really saying that, right? 
What kind of works did Jesus do? We start with the miracles. He made water into wine. He freed people from demonic possession. He healed the sick and the deformed. He caused fierce winds and raging waves to become calm in a moment. He fed many people with a few loaves and a few pieces of fish. He raised some people even from the dead. As you might expect, these miracles filled the people with, who saw them with, with awe. But in many cases, the people who saw those miracles only went on to resist Jesus even more. They even saw miracles, and all it did was harden their hearts against him. And those miracles were not the only works that Jesus did, though, right? What were some of the other works Jesus performed that people mentioned and that Scripture says filled the people with awe? Well, one is this, he forgave people their sins. You know, and everybody who saw that was like, come on, only God, only God can forgive sins. Luke 7, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and there was a woman in that city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now when the Pharisees, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. That's one of those where I wish I could have seen it. You know, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answers and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Jesus said directly to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sin? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In another passage, the Pharisees 
denounce Jesus as a blasphemer for announcing the forgiveness of people's sins. And they explain, they, you know, they, they exclaim, who can forgive sins but God alone? And truly, the forgiveness of sins does belong to God alone because every sin is a sin against Him. So they were right in the sense that the ultimate forgiveness of sins can only be done by God, but they were wrong in not recognizing Jesus as that God who can forgive sins. But there are still other works. One of the most potent things Jesus did was to preach. He preached the word. He was a preacher man. In Matthew 11.1, 1, we read, When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to preach and teach in their cities. So he just went from city to city preaching, just like the apostles would do following. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's Gospel, we read this. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So apparently the scribes taught in such a way that that you didn't come away thinking, hmm, their authority. You know, you just thought, ugh, that really had nothing to do with nothing. In a general sense, all that Jesus did and does now is is a work order of the Father, right? The Father gave him things to do, and the Son obeyed those commands of his Father. Remember, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Whether he ate or drank, preached or taught, whether he slept or remained awake, whether he talked or remained silent, whether he walked or sat, he did all for the glory of his Father. Right? Everything he did, all those works, he did to uh, glorify his Father. So when Jesus says to men, who, to the men who are gathered there in the upper room, that they would do greater works than he did, what does he mean? I mean, we've just gone through miracles. We've gone through him declaring forgiveness. We've gone through him preaching and teaching with authority. So what does he mean? Greater miracles? What greater miracle can you do than raise somebody from the dead who's been rotting for four days? None of the apostles ever did that. Greater forgiving of sins? Well, that belongs to God alone. Greater teaching? Well, that's something to consider. Greater godliness of life? No. Can't be some of those things because they belong only to God. Forgiveness of sins being one, greater godliness of life than the one who was tempted in all ways but never sinned. Right? It can't mean that. And so the apostles did not go on to lead sinless lives, you know, after they believed. Some think that that is a possibility for Christians to lead a sinless life, but that is false teaching. Paul opposed Peter to his face when Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was being swayed by the Judaizers. Anyway, you know, my my point is that the apostles did not lead sinless lives after they believed. Read Romans 7 about the 
Apostle Paul's struggles with sin. They had to repent, something Jesus never had to do. And so sinlessness was not a qualification for the office of apostle, and their godliness was not greater than that of the Son of God. So that leaves miracles and preaching. Those apostles did both of those things, right? They performed miracles, and what, what miracles did they perform? Many of them are recorded for us in the book of Acts. They spoke fluently in language they had, languages they had never learned. They healed the lame and the crippled, right? They cast out demons. They were freed from prison by angels. Uh, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead. Um, Paul didn't die when he was stung by a, a poisonous viper. There is certainly a parallel between these miraculous works and the miraculous works of the apostles. But were they greater? No, not really. They, they were similar. Um, it seems they were very similar, but a case could certainly be made that Jesus' miracles surpassed those of the apostles. Jesus did walk on water. Uh, none of the apostles did, and Jesus raised Lazarus after he had been in the tomb for four days. But if we compare the, the works of Jesus and the works of the apostles, there is one area where the magnitude of their power was greater than that of Jesus, which is a weird thing to say, right? But there is one area where their, their power was greater than Jesus, the response to the apostles' preaching was greater than the response of the pe to, to Jesus' preaching. The response of people to the apostles' preaching was greater than the response to Jesus' preaching. And I know it seems strange to say that, but it's backed up by Scripture. Yes, the people were awed by Jesus' authoritative preaching, but we don't read of 3,000 coming into his kingdom after one sermon, as we do with the apostles. Acts 2.41, So then those who had received Peter's word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, 4, but many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men of the men came to be about 5,000. Acts 5.14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Multitudes. The word of God kept on spreading, Acts 6, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Acts 11.21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Acts 11.24, And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. Okay, so that's the preaching of the apostles that led to this amazing influx of converted souls into the church. What we would expect to find is that this growth is the effectiveness of the preached word following the apostles' prayers, right? 
our passage said, you'll prayer, and what you pray for, I'll give to you. So are there any prayers in the book of Acts that we could go to that are fulfilled even in the book of Acts? Well, yeah, of course. Remember Jesus saying, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We have one of their prayers recorded for us in the fourth chapter of Acts. Listen to this. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Take note of what they've done to us, right? Telling us to stop teaching, preaching Christ. They're like... The Gentiles rage, you know, denouncing this work. And, that, and what do they ask for? Boldness in speech. That your servants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had been gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then did what? And began to speak the word of God with boldness. So that's the prayer that they lifted up to the Lord. After Jesus had told them, you ask anything in my name, I will give it to you. And they're here being persecuted. And they say, give us boldness and confidence to preach your word. And so they prayed for their speech and God powerfully answered that prayer to such an extent that we could even say that their preaching, because of the gift of the outpoured Holy Spirit, led to way more conversions than that of the preaching of the Son of God himself. We've seen this. Even the apostles had a hard time understanding Jesus' words. The apostles didn't understand the things that Jesus said when he preached. And the entire ministry of Christ is summarized in this statement in Gospels John. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. What did he come doing? He came preaching and teaching and they, they would not have it. He prefaced, and get this, Jesus prefaced his own preaching with, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he said of his own manner of speaking in parables, he said, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? You know, why do you do this? Why, do you, why are you talking to, in mysteries? Right? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it, it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have... Even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. 
in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says you will keep on hearing but will not understand. You will keep on seeing but will not perceive. For the hearts of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts and, would, and return and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And and so there's that. I mean, part of his preaching was was meant, it's it's prophesied to to fall on on, on misunderstanding ears. And it's to, to uh, not open their eyes. And then Isaiah 53 says this about our Lord. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And then contrast that with the work of the Spirit through the apostles and the spread of the gospel throughout the world. Even priests were coming to faith in Jerusalem during the time of the apostles. I mean, their stats, the stats of the apostles is off the charts compared to Jesus' stats. So it seems to me that these words of Jesus in the upper room have to do with all of that. And the reason we resist that interpretation of this passage is that we have been bamboozled by health and wealth gospels and so-called miraculous ministries like that of Benny Hinn, and we think that real power comes through miraculous healings and other such things. But dear brothers and sisters, I say it again, what would more awe you. Listen, what would more awe you? A broken bone healed, a demon cast out of a possessed man, or the turning of those who once hated Christ in Christianity to love Christ in his church? Healing of the body would be incredible, wouldn't it? I know some of you long for it. You long for your body to be healed, But think of how odd you'd be if revival broke out in Washington, D.C. Think how odd you'd be if, if revival broke out in San Francisco or Israel or Afghanistan. Now, we so often pray for healing, don't we? We want those miracles, but how often do we pray for revival? How often do we long to see people from every tongue, tribe, and nation singing the praises of our glorious Savior and Lord? How often do we focus on, on the spiritual over the physical? Would we rather have a Holy Spirit who healed our diseases or the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would convict the world concerning sin and judgment and righteousness? Which Holy Spirit do we want? Do we want to remove temporal suffering or do we want 
to see people believe in Jesus and come out from under the dominion of the prince of the power of the air. What do we want? I think if you had asked the apostles in the upper room, they would have chosen to have the kind of power in which the demons were subject to them. They had experienced that. That is until, I think they would have requested that, until they saw people responding with tears and faith to their preaching and seeing them come to Christ in mass quantities. And then they're like, this is no, this is no competition. This is no competition. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, do we care about conversions? Do we pray for conversions? Are we committed only to this life? Or are we also committed to the life to come? Another good Ryle quote here. It's hard to get through a sermon without quoting Ryle. And he, he says, Let us admire the condescension of our master in giving to the ministry of these weak servants more success than to his own. Let us learn that his visible presence is not absolutely necessary to the progress of his kingdom. He can help forward his cause on earth quite as much by sitting at the right hand of the Father and sending for the Holy Spirit, as by walking to and fro in the world. Let us believe that there is nothing too hard or too great for believers to do, so long as their Lord intercedes for them in heaven. Let us work on in faith and expect great things, though we feel weak and lonely like the disciples. Our Lord is working with us and for us, though we cannot see him. It was not so much the sword of Joshua that defeated Amalek, as the intercession of Moses up on the hill. So how, so, so how do these words apply to us today? Well, I think there are... I think there are applications, though the main fulfillment of these words was to the apostles. Jesus is speaking these words to his apostles. He's giving these words to the apostles. And the apostles went out and we see it fulfilled. And so we could, we could extract these out of the Bible and out of the context and say, well, they apply to us, you know, in one-to-one correspondence here. But that would be, that would be um, an error. That generation, that group of apostles did greater works. But like that generation in which the preaching of the word was blessed by the Holy Spirit, so too we ask God to work, or do we ask God to work in the preaching of the word today? There have been times of extraordinary outpourings of the Holy Spirit, right? We call those times revival. They cannot be predicted. They can't be manufactured by our own methods and efforts. We ask God in the same spirit with which the apostles ask God to give them boldness in their preaching. We ask with faith in the same promise, right, that was made to the apostles in the upper room, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. But we need to be about the work of praying to God for an outpouring of his spirit. 
We need to put more stock in unseen things than in seen things. We need to put our minds on the eternal and and take them off of the temporal. We need to think more highly of the miracle of conversion and not clamor after miracles that God promised only for that first generation of the church. We need to think more highly of the means by which God will reach the nations Right through men who preach the word in season and out of season. The preaching of the word. The preaching of the word. How absurd. How absurd that God would ordain the preaching of the word by sinful men to be the ongoing, powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit today. Do you pray for this pulpit? I mean, I get up here some weeks and I'm just like, the spirit did not move. And I just feel like I just went up here in my own strength and talked. And there are other times when I don't expect it and the spirit moves and (laughs) I don't know how it happened. (laughs) But pray for this pulpit. Pray for other pulpits. Pray for the pulpits of our churches. Pray for the pulpits of other denominations. Pray for the church, local and and Catholic. So we need to be committed to pray. We need to be committed that that there would be, I mean, that the Spirit would come upon us just for the purpose of prayer, but that that prayer would be said in faith and fervently you know, remembering this promise of God that he would give us what we ask and that we ask for the right things, not for selfish motives, but that the nations might be converted to him, that the church would be filled with those who are responding to the word of God. One final application, and I'm, as you as you might expect, um, if I can, uh-oh, where was it? Aha. Uh-huh. At this point in the sermon, you might expect that I would borrow from Ian Murray on revival, right? Men, you remember reading Revival and Revivalism, all about this topic of these special times of the outpouring of the Spirit, and... Um, This is just a little bit from that book on revival and provocative, here's what I want to say, provocative and belligerating ministries are all the rage today, okay? Provocative and belligerating podcasting ministries are all the rage today. The more um, hot takes, the more sound bites, the more... Um, outlandish you, you, things you can say, the more your ministry will grow. And they're all the rage today, and part of that is understandable, part of that is frustrating to me, part of it is understandable in that um, evangelicalism has become squishy and soft, and it's, it, has, it resists nothing anymore. 
And, but on the other hand, um, you can overcorrect um, on the opposite side. We face the unbelief of our society by pointing out the ignorance of unbelievers. That's what we do today. We face the unbelief of our society by pointing out the ignorance of unbelievers. That's not a, I'm not saying that you know, is a good thing. It's exactly the opposite of what needs to be done. Okay? Now, I'd have to explain that, but I'm going to move on. We respond to the wickedness of this perverse generation by not asking God for an outpouring of the Spirit by which dead hearts would be made alive and blind eyes open. Rather, rather, we talk with them about what constitutional rights and libertarian freedoms are being impinged upon. It's like we're American before we're Christian. And so I want to read a little bit from what Murray says here. And um, it won't take long. In the book of Acts, times of quickened spiritual prosperity and growth in the church are traced to new and larger measures of the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so through Christian history, the church has been raised to new energy and success by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God at special seasons of mercy, at such periods, to quote further from Jonathan Edwards, and this is Jonathan Edwards, the work of God is carried on with greater speed and swiftness, and there are often instances of sudden conversions at such a time. So it was in the apostles' days when there was a time of the most extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit that ever was. How quick and sudden were conversions in those days. So it is in some degree Whenever there is an extraordinary pouring out of the Spirit of God, more, more or less so in proportion to the greatness of that effusion. Back to Murray. These words convey the doctrinal understanding of revival that prevailed among the evangelical leaders of the 18th century. Edward's phraseology was common to them all. Whitfield saw the great change that began in America in the winter of 1739-40 to as an earnest of future and more plentiful effusions of God's Spirit in those parts. Samuel Blair wrote of the same change. It was in the spring of 1740 when the God of salvation was pleased to visit us with the blessed effusions of His Holy Spirit in an eminent manner. Similarly, Jonathan Dickinson observed of the same period that they were again visited with the special and manifest effusions of the Spirit of God. For these men... The word effusion, baptism, and outpouring of the Spirit were synonymous in meaning with revival of religion. The latter term, which was beginning to come into standard use only in the 1740s, was always understood in this sense, and as we shall see, nearly a hundred years were to pass before it began to be obscured. In so speaking of the Spirit's work in revival, these evangelical leaders were not disparaging the reality of his normal and regular work in the church. They were far from believing that true Christianity can only spread in the manner that it did in the 1740s. They were simply affirming that there are times when the Spirit is given in exceptional measure and that such times may come suddenly. Even when deadness is general in the church and indifference to biblical religion prevails in society at large. Okay, that's... That's now. That's us. 
There are areas, says Davies, when only a large communication or outpouring of the Spirit can produce a public general reformation. Thus, preaching on the happy effects of the pouring out of the Spirit from Isaiah 32, he argued that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the great and only remedy for a ruined country. The only effectual preventative of national calamities and desolation and the only sure cause of a lasting and well-established peace. The outpouring of the Spirit. Not the propping up of dead theologians' takes on eschatology or dead theologians' rejection of the ministry of the church entirely. But we need to plead, brothers and sisters, for the Spirit to be poured out upon the pulpits of the churches of our nation, of the nations of the world. We need to pray for it. And so pray. Pray for God's Spirit to be poured out. Pray that we will see revival during our day. Pray that the wreckage of our country's intellectual life will be righted and replaced by the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing people to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Great works of the Holy Spirit are not limited to physical miracles. That would be to severely limit the work of the Holy Spirit. Great works of the Holy Spirit are not limited to the time of the apostles. Great works of the Holy Spirit could be seen by us today if we repent of our infatuation with our intellects and works and logic and reason. And so we too may be witnesses of, of great works of the Holy Spirit, but it will only follow our asking for it in Christ's name. If you ask me, I will give it to you, Jesus said. We have not done this. We have not done this work. And then we look around and think, wow, this just preaching's terrible today. Pulpits are weak. We've done a thousand other things. We've done a lot of ministry. We've done a thousand other things, but we have not done the work of prayer for the pulpits. We have not asked God to give boldness to those who are called to preach his word. We have not asked for the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon our churches and our nation, and we are terribly negligent in that task. And so let's start doing that. Work that into your private prayers, please. Let's work it into our corporate prayers, please. And let's see if God doesn't do a work first in our own hearts and then in those around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we want to run and hide in a cave, thinking that there are so few of us and that the Holy Spirit is not at work. And Lord, we are to blame for that kind of unbelief. And so we ask that you would grant to us repentance, Father. Repentance for not believing 
that's the sending of your spirit to the apostles and then beyond that to your church through all the ages. Forgive us for believing that that Holy Spirit is not active today. Even though we've experienced it and Him in our own hearts. And so, Father, we, we ask boldly and we ask for the faith required to even pray this, pray this prayer that you would pour out your Spirit in this church and that the character of the preaching would go from weak to bold. And we ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon the pulpits around this city. And that those pulpits would go from mealy mouth to bold. We pray for you to work in the pulpits of your churches in this nation. That great boldness would come forth. And, the, and, and no one would be able to understand the character and the, the seeming change of temperament of all the pastors who are preaching now in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we would see conversions. We would see people repenting of their sins. We would see people who hated everything to do with Christ come to Christ just like the Apostle Paul. And we pray for the pulpits of the world and the nations of the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, even those in Muslim lands that they would be filled with boldness, that we might see revival break out in Saudi Arabia, in Afghanistan. We pray that you would work in the, the, the underground pulpits of the church in China and that your power would be poured out and the message would go forth in power and we would see the idol of communism fall and many turn to worship the true and living God. Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work. And we do, we do continue to ask for forgiveness for not asking for this. Lord, I pray that we would be committed to it and, and that the longing to see revival and people professing your name would so fill our hearts. The vision of that would so fill our hearts. Love for our neighbor would so fill our hearts that we would continually be praying for this. Lord, help us. Lord, we do desire to see the hardness of heart that we see around us soften. We desire to see people professing your name we are so discouraged to see so many people run after idols and to, to ignore the one source of salvation. And so, Father, give us your spirit as we speak to people along the way in the grocery store, at work. Give us your spirit as we talk to our family. Give us your spirit. Pour out your spirit. We do long to see this, Father. 
Make our hearts long for it even more. To your glory, to the great name of your Son, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.